Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. Wherever you are, whoever you are, crypto skeptic, half believer, or enthusiast, it's really great to have you tuning in to Crypto Unstacked, where we bring you a cup of crypto every week and unstack everything from crypto finance to global macroeconomics. This podcast assumes basic knowledge of crypto and aims to explore some more advanced topics about the crypto markets, such as trading strategies, lending, and derivatives. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group. This week's Crypto Unstacked features Palap Angsupan. Palap has long been a respected trader in the financial markets. During the financial crisis, he managed the Black Swan Tail Risk Protection Fund at Universa alongside Nassim Taleb. Palop has now taken his expertise over to the crypto markets and is the chief risk officer at JST Capital. I learned a lot during our conversation and hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hey, Palop. Welcome to Crypto Unstacked. It's great to have you join me on the pod. Yes. Hi, Leslie. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've been really looking forward to our conversation for quite some time now, and I'm really excited to finally sit down and chat with you. Before we dive in, though, it would be great if you could share more about your background, how you made your way into crypto, and where you're working now. Yeah, so uh, my name is Palop Bangsupan, and I guess you could call me the uh, volatility and risk specialist at JST. Um, JST Capital is a financial services company operating in the crypto space. We're based in the U.S. and Singapore, and our focus is on providing traditional financial products to institutional clients. Uh, some of our primary business lines include crypto-backed lending, proprietary trading, market making, and asset management. Uh, for me, one of my roles at JST include providing external risk management services to institutions with exposures to crypto. This means analyzing their portfolios and providing advice and regular reports regarding market exposures and potential risks. I mean, it's primarily for those with complex portfolios with things such as leveraged derivatives, OTC structured products, or collateralized loans. This means that I'm heavily involved in modeling the behavior of crypto prices and analyzing their price actions and their effect on portfolios. So effectively, we are leveraging our expertise in quantitative finance to help clients manage their risks and improve their profitability. So regarding to my background, I've been trading volatility as an asset class for over 20 years, mostly U.S. equity derivatives, although some commodities and fixed income. Out of those 20 years, I'd say nearly 10 years has been spent working with Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who many may know as the author of The Black Swan, among many other works. I was his lead portfolio manager during the financial market crisis in 2008, which was what the event allowed me to make a name for myself when we generated huge profits for our investors and literally saved the business of some of them. I then left to start my own business, again running volatility strategies, sold that business a few years ago, and ended up in crypto. 
So what attracted me to crypto a few years ago was not really the product per se. I mean, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but unfortunately, I'm not one of those guys who believe blockchain technology is the best thing that ever happened or that will spark a complete revolution and reinvent the global financial system. I mean, I'm sure we all know people like that, but I have to admit that's not really me. Instead, what I saw in crypto was a challenge. To me, this was an asset class that had real volatility uh, at a time when, when equities had none. And it had very interesting properties and price movements that defied traditional financial models. So where you plug crypto price data into equity models and see them completely fail. So for me, crypto was an untamed beast. Uh, it was a challenge that attracted me. And I can't really say that I'm one of the true disciples of this stuff. It was just something that was a challenge and interesting and, and at the right point in my career where I wanted to try something new. Yeah, that's very fascinating. We'll definitely draw from various parts of your background that you mentioned during the course of our conversation. But I wanted to start off by asking a few basic questions to help set us up for our discussion today. Broadly speaking, in finance and economics, we often hear the words risk and uncertainty being thrown around. What do you understand risk to mean? Well, what the typical definition of risk is volatility. Volatility is, is a very powerful concept used in statistics, commonly defined as, as a standard deviation. And, and it's easy to see why it's such a popular measure, because it's so easy to handle. When you make an assumption of a normal distribution, all it takes is two parameters, basically the mean and standard deviation, to calculate very, very precisely the exact probabilities of any event occurring. And if we take, of course, the mean to be some sort of risk-free rate, what that means is that everything that can possibly happen in terms of price movement can be boiled down to one single number, the standard deviation or volatility. So no wonder it's attractive for use by traders and risk managers. With one single parameter, with only one single number to monitor, I can tell you exactly the probability of Bitcoin moving X percent or the probability that my investment loses Y dollars or any other number of possibilities only with a single number. Number. And that's why it's become very popular. It's just for simplicity uh, rather than for accuracy. Obviously, we'll, we'll go into a lot more detail about that. But yeah, that's that's how typically risk managers think uh, of volatility, is that it's a simple, elegant way to encapsulate the whole world into a single number. Right, right. And is this so objective of risk management to minimize volatility? Does taking risk come at a cost? Well, 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 volatility is not exactly the same thing as risk. Risk is an exposure to the downside, to losses. For example, we don't say the risk of making money. That doesn't really make sense. Making profits is not a risk. We use volatility because it is a single parameter that captures all possibilities, but includes the possibility of making and losing money as well. And, and that's because of the assumption of symmetry that's implicit in the normal distribution. With symmetry, upside events were as likely as downside events. So within that assumption of symmetry, what you have is the probability of making money becomes equal to the probability of losing money. This led to concepts that became very popular in finance, where you're able to use that single parameter to give birth to a whole rise of financial models. And we're talking about mean variance optimization or, or Markowitz type models, or even Sharpe ratios, which became dominant investment theory in the 60s and 70s. In these models, volatility became synonymous with risk. And then the objective with all these models became to focus on, on alpha, on real excess returns, and volatility became 
something that was known as a negative that drew away from that alpha. Any deviation from that alpha number was something to be frowned upon. And, you know, I hate to say it, but the, these types of models are still very much in use by asset managers worldwide. They're still taught in business schools. But the problem with these types of models is that when the symmetry assumption breaks down, when your upside isn't the same as your downside, uh, those theories break down as well. So that's why, you know, volatility uh, no longer is the same thing as risk. It never really was. It only became synonymous with risk uh, with the advent of these types of uh, financial models in the 60s and 70s. I've actually heard that a majority of the financial models, which you've mentioned, don't actually take into account tail risks, which we'll talk about a bit later, but rather known possible risks based on historical data. Is that true? Well, it is to a certain extent. Um, you know, we, you could have tail events in historical data, but the problem is not the fact that tail risks occur or do not occur. It's the fact that trying to boil down those risks into a single volatility number is a flawed concept to begin with, because you can't possibly capture the whole range of possibilities in a single number. I mean, that's just sparks of laziness more than anything else. And, you know, obviously people trying to build financial models are looking for something simple and clean and elegant, which is why it became very popular. Popular. But the important thing is to know that, yes, it's still a tool that we can use. I'm sure most of the finance world is still using it. But we need to understand when it fails, how it fails, and just be prepared for that. I wanted to go back to that one point that you mentioned, which is about having an elegant narrative with these models, right? Humans are attracted to these bite-sized explanations for why things happen. We like to understand cause and effect dynamics and see pretty charts that show correlations between variables. Uh, so, so we like to be fed narratives about things happening around us because that's how we make sense of all of it. But when it comes to risk management, you aren't really afforded all the information and therefore the luxury of a bow tie narrative, right? You are dealing with the probability of extreme outcomes. How do you account for uncertainty and the chance for randomness? Could you share some of your thoughts there? Well, you have to understand that when an unforeseen and very dramatic event occurs, we have a tendency to explain things after the fact. We come up with plausible reasons for it and then make it sound as if the event was inevitable, given those circumstances. I mean, that's just human nature. So when those specific circumstances start to reappear in the future, now we're prepared for it. But then the event still occurs, and then we have to adjust our reasoning again and look for new reasons and new causes, new excuses, so to speak, as to why it occurred. This is a losing battle because you never really know what's going to happen, and, and sometimes you don't really know what the drivers for it are. And if you overfit your analysis to certain drivers you thought may have caused what happened in the past, uh, sometimes that doesn't really capture the full picture. So when dealing with probabilities as a risk manager, you need more to focus on how your portfolio reacts to these random events rather than try to predict when these events will occur and, and what causes them. Right, right. And I wanted to talk about Black Thursday, the March sell-off that we all saw in the crypto space. How do you think the March sell-off changed people's mentality or behavior toward volatility? Well, well, I think crypto traders are more immune to high volatility than, than those in other assets. Um, there's the really three main reasons. I think just the structure of crypto trading and the technology behind it, uh, and also the familiarity. In terms of the structure, the, a key benefit of trading crypto is that you do have 24-7 markets. You don't get the luxury to do that in equities. When the market closes overnight, um, you, then you wake up the next morning after a big jump, and you really can't do anything in the interim. I mean, you can trade futures and sometimes things like that, but that's really not a 
pure substitute. You know, we're in crypto, you have these 24-7 markets. You can respond to price movements. You can respond to events in a much faster fashion. And, and that's another benefit of crypto is the technology. During a period of higher volatility, you need to act faster. Maybe you need to post margin quicker. You need to make payments quicker. And blockchain technology really lends itself to that approach. You know, Being able to remove these frictions in, in asset transfers or, or these payments uh, allow crypto traders to operate at higher frequencies than those in traditional financial markets where you, ha- you have a margin call and it takes three days to post. So, And, and for the third part where, where crypto traders are more immune to volatility is, is just by familiarity. Price movements we saw in March were, were really nothing new that we haven't seen before in the very recent past. We, we know that crypto moves uh, and we're prepared for it. Whereas, you know, sometimes if you're an equities trader or, or a crude oil trader, you get caught with your pants down. Yeah, it seems like many trading shops within crypto are, are run by seasoned traders uh, who have decades of trading experience in the traditional financial world, but really little experience trading crypto specifically. And so how should these people approach risk management when they know so little about this emerging asset class? Well, let's go back to the definition of what we mean by risk management. Um, the idea of risk management is really to be able to understand the contents of your portfolio and to know how it responds to various price movements or, or various other instances. You know, and that's no different if you're a crypto risk manager or you're an equities risk manager or a fixed income risk manager. With crypto, obviously, you are dealing with a much higher volatility, but the standard response is the same. You know, you need to be able to know what your portfolio holds. You need to know where you your exposures lie. And you need to know that in this state of the world, this is when I get into trouble. And in other states of the world, I don't. So from a risk manager's perspective, uh, the, the key thing is to be able to know that your models can handle the higher volatility and know that when you are building these volatility models with a higher volatility, you can get some really weird effects that you don't see in other markets. For instance, there's a sort of what we call time scaling of volatility. You know, in, in traditional equity markets, you typically think of volatility as a standard deviation of daily returns. You take the price today, subtract the price yesterday, divide that difference by yesterday's price, you have a daily return number, calculate the standard deviation of that history over a certain interval. That's volatility in in, in traditional markets. But why do we care in crypto? I mean, crypto is 24-7. Do we really care about the concept of a daily standard deviation? Do we care what happens over a 24-hour block? Is it just inertia or is it just a lack of creativity among people in crypto? Why should we care about a 24-hour block of time more or less than a one-minute block or an eight-hour block or even a one-year block? You know, who cares about a one-year time block that people do? My accountant definitely does, who, the guy who prepares my tax returns and financial statements. I mean, he doesn't care what happens happens on a day-to-day basis. He cares about what happens on a, on a year-to-year basis. But who cares about eight-hour blocks rather than 24-hour blocks? Maybe it's crypto traders who have exposure to funding when you're trading perps, and all you really care about is that eight-hour funding cycle. In that case, what's the point of analyzing a 24-hour block when your main focus is the eight-hour block? So, I mean, I, I want to get into more to this concept of having you know fluctuating time horizons and looking at the world in, in different blocks of time rather than just taking the simple standard inertia where we take what's happening in equities and and just look at a 24-hour time period. I mean, mean, it's obvious why in equities, right? Because you do have that daily close and the the morning open. So that 24-hour block may make sense for equities. But uh, in crypto, there's no reason to stick to 24 hours. A 24-hour time period in crypto means has absolutely no structural meaning whatsoever. 
So, so that's one of those things that as a risk manager coming into crypto or as a trader or volatility trader coming to crypto, that you really need to get your head around uh, when you're building these models. That 24-hour time period, you know, you can be flexible about that and you can get creative about that. From what I'm hearing you say, it depends on what type of market participant you are. When it comes to risk management, you have to tailor the models more towards what makes sense for you as a trader or investor and whether you have a long-term or short-term horizon, and perhaps you can even break it down further within those timeframes. Is that correct? Right, right. And, and you can even take that a, a step further. Um, you can even think about uh, having a stochastic time frame. So, so let's think about when you're talking about time periods of different volatility. Like, for example, we know that March was more volatile than in, than in January. But at the same time, at the right time scale, everything has the same volatility. Let me give you an example. I don't want to get too abstract here. This is starting to sound like a textbook, right? But but if, if, if we have, like, let's say two assets, let's say asset A and asset B, asset A moves around 20% a day. So it's a lot more volatile than asset B, which moves around, say, 1% a day. But by saying that, by making that assumption, we're assuming that we're measuring price changes on the same time scale. What if we allowed A and B to have different time scales? So instead of saying that the price of A moves around 20% a day, we may be able to determine that the price of A moves around 1% an hour. So if A moves around by 1% an hour and B moves around by 1% a day, you can now say that A and B are both moving around by 1%, only that A's measurement time scale is shorter than that of B. And if we think about this concept from a trading and risk management perspective, say your models and your risk systems were designed and calibrated for an asset that moves around 1% a day, then for example, March rolls around, volatility increases dramatically. All you really have to do is shrink the time scale with which you analyze that asset. If you had a model designed for trading an asset that is moving 1% a day, when volatility is higher, you can reset to shorter time scale so that your asset is still moving around by 1%. The properties haven't changed, only the time scale. So you hedge more frequently, you recalibrate your models more frequently, you reset your stops more frequently. Whatever it is you were doing previously before volatility increased, all you have to do is reduce the scale with which you measure time. And if you think about it, it's really not that revolutionary a concept. I and mean, we're already doing this, sometimes implicitly rather than formalizing it. We know, for example, that volatility in crypto is reduced on the weekend and we adjust our behavior accordingly. How we trade is different over the weekends than during the week. This just means that a block of time on the weekend is a bit longer than a block of time during the week. Maybe that the hands on your clock start moving a little bit faster or slower, uh, depending on volatility. So, I mean, before you think I'm a complete <laughs> knot, you know, I've been stuck in my apartment too long, under lockdown, you know, I've seen the hands on my clock move faster and slower at different times, but uh, you know, I'm not the only one. You know, there, there's a it's a well-known approach in the literature known as stochastic time change. You know, your listeners can look up if they want. You know, I don't want to go into too much depth on that. Right. So it's important to have dynamic models, is what you're saying here. Right. Right. And, and it allows you to handle periods of high volatility and low volatility without totally tearing apart everything that you've studied so far. Right. You know, if your models are designed to handle a 1% move, I mean, the markets are still moving 1%, just 1% in a shorter time frame than they were before. That makes sense. Yeah. Thanks so much for breaking that down for us. Next, I want to talk about this line in Taleb's book, The Black Swan, that really caught my attention. And I'm going to quote this directly. What matters is not how often you're right, but how large your cumulative errors are. And these cumulative errors depend largely on the big surprises, the big opportunities. And I thought this was a really prescient sentence. Curious to hear your thoughts on this. Well, well the tendency for 
data analysts is to focus on what happens most of the time and discount the effect of outliers. You have a model that is well-behaved, well-calibrated, and does a good job explaining the data most of the time, but then there are always these few data points that doesn't fit so well. So you call them outliers, you come up with some fancy explanation or fancy excuse as to why they don't fit your model. You know, it was a special event or a series of very specific circumstances that caused it. And, and then you say, you're not going to worry about it anymore because it's not going to happen again. And I'm going to stick to my model, which does a good job in ordinary circumstances or, or everyday situations. And, and that's very dangerous thinking because it is those very special rare instances that can have an outsized effect on your long-term success or failure. You know, you could be making 1% profit every single month for years, and then that one special event can cause you to lose everything and then some. It's kind of like owning a bond that defaults. You get your coupon regularly, and then all of a sudden you've lost everything. And it's always a very special situation that causes that default. But if you are a bond investor, you can't just ignore it or just claim that it was an excuse or unforeseen circumstances beyond our control or, or whatever other series of excuses we hear lately. So, so if you go back to where we're discussing earlier about volatility, when these rare events happen, the concept of volatility kind of breaks down. You, you have an event that just isn't supposed to happen. The event happens once in a thousand years or however uh, you can frame it. But the question now becomes, can we really afford to ignore these events when we're building our models? And, and that's the question that Taleb likes to pose, right? Is that these rare events, if they have a huge effect on your portfolio, they, they need to be part of your model. You can't just say, I have a model that's correct 99% of the time. The times that it's not correct, it's not going to have a 1% effect on my long-term profitability. It's going to have a much bigger effect. So before we move on to the next topic, let's take a quick break and hear a few words about Amber Group. This episode of the Crypto Unstacked podcast is presented by Amber Group. Amber Group is a fully integrated crypto finance platform offering a suite of secondary market services across trading, wealth management, and financing solutions. We are backed by some amazing investors such as Paradigm and Pantera and work with clients and partners all over the world. Head on over to ambergroup.io to learn more about us. That's A-M-B-E-R-G-R-O-U-P dot I-O. Paula, how do you think the March sell-off changed people's mentality or behavior toward cryptocurrencies? Why do you think that during this incredibly volatile period, crypto price action has had a high beta with traditional assets? Well, when you think about the, the world we're living in today, this is kind of supposed to be the doomsday scenario that crypto pioneers were thinking about, which would lead to widespread adoption of digital currency. And there's a loss of trust in central banks and governments, which were already drowning in debt at the beginning of the year, are now forced to hand out fiscal stimulus and pay unemployment benefits and fund healthcare systems, bail out airlines, hotels, oil companies, maybe even banks pretty soon. Plus, with nobody working, tax revenues are definitely going down dramatically. So I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see governments default, um, whether it's national governments or state or local governments. Despite all these genuine concerns about the world as we know it, we're not seeing people outside this space really talking about crypto that much. You know, in March, there was a flight to quality, but that flight to quality was not a flight to crypto. 
Instead, what we saw was a flight from crypto, which is kind of the opposite of what the early pioneers envisaged. Crypto became lumped into what was considered risk assets, and, and there was a genuine deleveraging of risk assets across the spectrum. And so there's still no widespread adoption of crypto. And if not in this macroeconomic environment, then what will it take? And I think that's a question that's on a lot of people's minds, is that in this extreme event we're all living in today, we should be seeing crypto much more popular than how we're looking at it. Um, you know, a lot of the problem with crypto and, and, and the crypto financial services is that much of the recent innovations have kind of been on products to enhance the, the product offering available to those already involved in crypto. You know, you're essentially providing new toys to those already in the room rather than an attempt to grow the size of the room. And that's where most of the innovation in the past few months have, have been in crypto you know that so, so that's a difficult question to answer like i said if not in this environment what will it take you know nobody trusts governments anymore and everybody's talking about possibilities of defaults and devaluation of fiat currencies but uh, crypto is not being proposed as a solution Right. That's very interesting. So it seems like even with all the growth in the space, a lot of the financial offerings have been geared more towards crypto natives, whether it be on the investing side or on the trading side. What limitations do you see within the crypto space that is preventing more of the uninitiated from really getting in? Well, well I, I want to make a key distinction, first of all, of course, is that I have no doubt in my mind that blockchain technology will be widely adopted in the near future. Uh, but that doesn't really mean that crypto will be. Uh, and that's a distinction that's kind of important. The technology used in blockchain, used in developing payments can really exist without the crypto industry ever picking up or, or benefiting from that. And by crypto, I mean the trading of these coins or the investments in these coins that we all know. Right now, most of the limitations that outsiders view crypto is, is because of the high volatility. That's always been a concern. It's been a concern for the past few years and, and people don't really trust this new ecosystem. Right now, JST, one of the things we're working on is we're in the early stages of developing products that provide more of a risk-controlled on-ramp, such as maybe principal-protected notes linked to crypto. So, so that is an avenue that could have potential in the near future, with government debt yielding zero, default risk increasing. Uh, maybe there is an opportunity for this type of product that could enhance the uh, interest of crypto from people outside the space. You know, the limitations still remain the same. People don't really trust it. There's always concerns of volatility. And speaking on volatility, it seems like a lot of the crypto natives are, are really interested in trading the derivatives market, given the leverage that is available compared to spot, for example. And given the growth of the crypto derivatives market, there are going to be more and more risks associated with trading in that market. So what are the tail risks you see in crypto derivatives and how do you hedge these risks? Yeah, so, so tail risk in crypto, I mean, I'm sorry to say that even though we've spent the last half hour talking about volatility, that's not really where the tail risk is. The biggest concern about crypto is not volatility or market movements. The biggest concern is counterparty risk and custody, which is kind of ironic because the whole idea of crypto and blockchain and the concept of decentralized exchanges was supposed to take care of custody and counterparty issues. 
But somehow we end up in a world where we have these you know, centralized exchanges, uh, derivatives exchanges, um, and traders sometimes get a false sense of security when they trade on a, on a centralized exchange. But sometimes the risk of an exchange defaulting can be greater than that of an OTC counterparty. Um, exchanges are, are less likely to be transparent about their balance sheets, for example, whereas if you trade OTC, um, you typically get much greater transparency about that. So, so the biggest tail risk in crypto still remains custody, still remains remains uh, counterparty risk. And as we migrate to more and more on centralized exchanges and away from the ideals of the blockchain world of crypto, uh, that's going to become even more of a concern. We were talking earlier about flaws and models built for risk and volatility. Now I want to ask you how you approach modeling as a risk manager. Well, well the first part is, is to always think as a trader rather than as a researcher. Um, as a trader, you're not really trying to get the best fit. You're not trying to get the most accurate model. You're, you're not trying to find a model that, that best explains historical data because inevitably, you know that model will fail. So what you need to understand is that you need to know when your model fails and when it does, what are the risks, and create a model that can withstand that. Um, so you approach modeling with that mindset when you create a model that where you can say, okay, it's not the most accurate model, but when it fails, I know how to handle it and I know it won't hurt me. And that's a key difference between approaching modeling as a trader versus as a, as a quant. Um, you know, a model that is 99.99% accurate but where you don't understand what really happens during that 0.01% of the time is a lot more dangerous for a trader than a model that's less accurate, but when you know that, okay, these are what happens when it fails. Uh, and the problem with most of the financial industry, not just in crypto, but uh, in Wall Street in general, is that there's very little intersect uh, between the quants doing the modeling and the traders who are deploying risk. You know, the people who are pricing models or who are building pricing models or risk models are not the same people as those deploying capital. Uh, and so that's what leads to a very dangerous world. And so the philosophy, the mindset that you really should have as a modeler is that you want to get hurt the least rather than say, I want the model that's most accurate. That's interesting. I want to pick up on the word you just mentioned, philosophy. Could you talk more about how you develop this philosophy? Well, well, well the philosophy is that um, you set out when you start to find a, something, a model that's designed to weather all storms. You, you don't start with the data and build a model around it. You know, that, that leads to what we call data mining in the industry, um, where you have something that you really don't understand what's going on. Um, and you end up with a model that, yeah, okay, could be completely accurate, could explain the past very well, but you don't know how that model will perform in the future. Uh, so the philosophy that you need to approach modeling is thinking about it as as a trader, as a risk manager, looking for worst case scenarios and saying, you know, I'm okay with a model that's not 100% accurate. Uh, and, and that's a very difficult approach for a lot of people to have. Everybody's looking for perfection all the time. Uh, but getting that extra bit of accuracy comes at a cost. And that cost is highest when we don't really know what that cost is in advance. Thanks for explaining that. I hadn't thought about there being a trade-off between modeling for accuracy and modeling for the worst case scenario, as you said. You think if your model could fit for existing data points that it's so-called a better model than one that is trying to account for the worst case scenario we're not even sure will exist in the future. 
Now I want to move on to the part of our conversation where our listeners can get to know you a bit more. So this is more of a personal question. What important truth about the crypto space do you believe in that few might agree with you on? Well, you know, that there is a common belief uh, in the crypto world that the volatility we saw in Bitcoin in 2017 and 2018 is something in the distant past that we don't need to worry about anymore. You know, Bitcoin is a more mature, more mature asset. The players are more mature. The structure has more sophisticated financial products and derivatives in place. I, I don't really buy that. You know, I mean, how often have we heard the saying, this time it's different, and yet the same events in past just keep reoccurring. Um, so my belief is that, you know, if we ignore Bitcoin's history, um, that could be very dangerous. To say that Bitcoin today is very different from the Bitcoin in 2017 uh, is a bit far-fetched for me. And now it's time for a round of rapid fire. I'm going to ask you whether you're bullish or bearish, and you can expand if you wish. So let's start it off. Bitcoin, bullish or bearish? Well, I guess I'm bearish Bitcoin, um, along with most other risk assets right now. I feel that a V-shaped recovery in asset prices, uh, which has been priced into many markets, is, is probably unlikely to see that V-shape. Uh, so we could potentially see another deleveraging event away from risk assets. As I mentioned before earlier, you know, the flight to quality so far has not meant a flight to Bitcoin, and I have no reason to believe that will change. So bearish. Libra 2.0, bullish or bearish? Well, Libra is, is a stable coin, and you know, I'm bearish both the dollar and the euro, so that, does that make me bearish stable coins? And then the other thing is, as much as I hate the Fed, <laughs> I, I still trust the Fed much more than, than any private issuer of stable coins. Right. So, so perhaps not even just 2.0, just Libra project in general, you're quite bearish on. Well, you know, it, it's linked to an asset that I'm bearish in. And furthermore, it has additional uh, uh, risks or, or counterparty issuance risks, uh, more so than the Fed. What is the development within the crypto industry that has surprised you over this past year? Well, to be honest, I'm still surprised the crypto industry exists. You know, it has much longer staying power than I really could have imagined. But, you know, for this industry to grow, it really does need new blood. It can't just be a closed room with just the same list of players. Um, it really needs to expand. Right. And what excites you going forward about the crypto industry, Paula? Oh, well, you know, there, there are just so many people that are really passionate about it, this industry, you know, um, and that's, that's exciting to, to feed on that energy. Um, I've mentioned this before already, but, but the key challenge is how do we expand this group of passionate believers while staying true to crypto's original philosophies? You know, we've, I feel that much of, much of the financial services in crypto has, has moved away from these original philosophies. And by that, I mean the democratized, decentralized, government-free principles of crypto. Stable coins pegged to fiat currencies don't really apply. To me, that's not real crypto, um, nor do having unregulated centralized exchanges in whatever shady jurisdictions with suspect custody solutions. That, that's not real crypto either. So, so it'll be interesting to see how this industry evolves and, and whether the, this passion uh, among the true believers can lead to something or we end up with some hybrid uh, worst of both worlds kind of scenario. So is it fair to say that you're still an optimist despite some of these skepticisms here? 
Uh, always optimistic. <laughs> Great. Well, Paula, thanks so much for joining us on Crypto and Stat Podcast this week. This is really a treat for our listeners. I really enjoyed our conversation today and hope to bring you on again soon. Yes, thanks, Leslie. It was very much a pleasure and I really enjoyed my time. As always, hope you enjoyed this week's Cup of Crypto. If you like what you heard, please share and subscribe on Spotify and anchor.fm slash crypto unstacked. Do engage with us through social media. I'll provide details in the show notes and connect with me on Twitter at Les Lambo. That's L-E-S-L-A-M-B-0. Would love to chat with you. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take care and see you at our next episode. <laughs>